This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. We have an action-packed episode this week, and last week was a big week in the automotive business because we saw the birth of a new automaker, which doesn't happen every day, and we'll talk about this new automaker on today's show. This automaker may not seem new because this new automaker already made cars that we all know and love, but behind the scenes, there's a lot going on that's new about this automaker. We'll talk about the return of rental car roulette, what it's like to rent a car during a pandemic, and how things are going at my favorite rental car agency, Hertz. Finally, we have a listener question this week about dash cameras and why we don't see more of them in cars coming from the factory. So to kick us off, First, we have to talk about the latest news in the car business. This past week, we saw the birth of a new automaker with a funny-sounding name, Stellantis. So when you hear Stellantis, it might sound like a prescription medication or some sort of crazy new technology item, but Stellantis is a car maker, and it's the result of a merger between two existing automakers, Group PSA of France, who is commonly referred to as Peugeot, and FCA, or more commonly referred to as Fiat Chrysler, which itself is the result of a 2010 combination of Italian automaker Fiat and American automaker Chrysler. So what exactly is Stellantis? And Stellantis is the product of two automakers run by Carlos Tavares, who was previously the CEO at Peugeot prior to the merger, and prior to working at Peugeot was the chief operating officer, or COO, at Renault, working under Carlos Ghosn. And Carlos Tavares is most famous for successfully turning around both Peugeot and Opel, two automakers in Europe who were struggling substantially during the 2000s and early 2010s. Opel was struggling so much that it was rumored that General Motors, their previous owner, had lost $20 billion in the past 10 years alone. But this was a task that wasn't daunting to Carlos Tavares, so he took on Opel, integrated them with Peugeot, and successfully turned around both businesses. And as the turnaround was underway, he was thinking about how to further build on the company because Peugeot and Opel together, they were an automaker heavily concentrated in Western Europe without a lot of expertise in building large, profitable vehicles like sport utility vehicles and pickup trucks that American and Chinese buyers liked. And to top it all off, the combined automaker didn't sell cars in the United States. So Carlos Tavares was thinking about, what can I do to make this automaker a truly global automaker? At the same time, Fiat Chrysler had successfully recovered from the financial crisis where Fiat had had to bail out Chrysler. And the automaker had successfully restructured and reformed and was making a lot of money in the United States. But they realized that their product portfolio was very dependent on large trucks and SUVs and that they didn't really have any expertise building anything smaller than, say, a Jeep Cherokee. So Fiat Chrysler looked around and they said, who can we partner with that will give us some of the expertise in smaller cars and where we can maybe combine some of our operations and save some money? So Fiat Chrysler approached Renault about a potential merger, thinking that they could create kind of a three-way alliance between Fiat Chrysler, Renault, and Nissan and have massive economies of scale. 
But the discussions didn't really go anywhere, and so Fiat Chrysler started looking elsewhere. And they took a look around the world, and they thought, who would be a good merger partner? And it turns out it was Peugeot, who kind of had this complementary product portfolio, had a lot of shared European operations where they could consolidate the automaker and save a lot of money. Plus, FCA had a lot of experience in large trucks and SUVs that Peugeot didn't have, and so Fiat Chrysler could bring something to the table. So the merger seemed to make a lot of sense. The two companies chose to merge because they have very different and complementary product portfolios and geographic footprints. So when they combined, they wouldn't have a ton of overlap and they could help fill the gaps that the other automakers had. So they wouldn't have to spend a lot of money developing the parts of their product portfolios that they didn't know how to do. The two automakers can also share a lot of the behind the scenes administrative roles and they can work together on new technologies to meet increasingly challenging safety and emission standards worldwide. In particular, Fiat Chrysler is heavily reliant on Jeep and Ram products to make money, and Peugeot doesn't really sell anything larger than a compact or mid-sized crossover prior to the merger. So by combining, Fiat Chrysler gets access to lots of small car engineering know-how, which they can have in case consumer preferences in the U.S. and China shift rapidly, once again, from large cars to small cars. And this merger gives Peugeot access to engineering know-how for large cars that are very profitable and consumers increasingly want worldwide. It also just so happens that the two automakers are running behind their peers in terms of electric vehicle development. So when they combine together, they don't have to catch up separately and they can work together and do one joint effort that they can use across both product portfolios. The two automakers are also very dispersed and have very little overlap with each other geography-wise, aside from Europe. So within Europe, they have substantial opportunity to consolidate across all of their European brands and take out cost and improve their chances at profitability. So they have Peugeot, Citroën, Opel, Vauxhall, and Fiat, and These brands over the long haul can either be specialized in a certain area so they don't overlap and compete with each other like they do today, or eventually they could even be consolidated, even though Carlos Tavares has promised that no brands are going to be cut at day one. In addition, the two automakers' premium brands, DS, Alfa Romeo, Lancia, and Maserati, also have lots of opportunity to consolidate and share engineering on all the latest technologies and products that the premium shopper wants to see. So the two automakers project being able to save close to $6 billion a year in costs through increased scale, the ability to remove duplicate R&D effort, and being able to reinvest all these savings towards catching up on new projects in electric and autonomous cars, since both automakers are behind. In addition, both FCA and Peugeot were relatively weak in the Chinese market, which is now the largest automotive market globally. So by joining together, they can refocus their Chinese efforts and better coordinate the behavior across all of their brands. And if this sounds like a very familiar story to you, if you've been listening to some of our previous episodes, that's because it is. So Carlos Tavares spent a lot of his career at Renault working as Carlos Ghosn's number two executive. So he's learned a lot from Carlos Ghosn about how to turn around a struggling automaker that doesn't have enough scale by combining with another automaker who also doesn't have enough scale. So he's taken these lessons from Renault to P1 
PSA group, and he hopes to apply these lessons to the combined Stellantis and take out even more cost. More interestingly, a lot of stock analysts on Wall Street expect this merger to kick off a new wave of consolidation in the car business. Even if they're not full mergers, that the stock analysts are expecting new alliances where automakers will work together to share the cost of developing electric vehicles and autonomous car technology, which is very expensive and costly for automakers to develop. And so while Stellantis right now is the newest automaker on the block, it's probably the start of a new wave of consolidations and combinations and alliances across the automotive business. So it's going to be a very exciting space over the next couple years. For listeners in the United States, there likely won't be anything dramatically different over the next few years. So Peugeot previously didn't sell cars in the United States and hasn't sold cars here since the early 1990s, but they've been putting together a plan to return to the U.S. market for a few years. But now that they've merged with Fiat Chrysler, these plans are, are likely going to be paused for a while while the company works on integrating both Peugeot and Fiat Chrysler together. In particular, Carlos Tavares now has 38 senior executives reporting up to him, which is a big increase over the 18 he had reporting to him at Peugeot. So he's going to be very busy just keeping an eye on the newly combined automaker and trying to make sure they can deliver on the savings that they've promised Wall Street. So don't get too excited about seeing Peugeot and Citroen products running around the United States because these products are probably not coming. So some automotive enthusiasts were talking about how maybe this means we'll see some cool, small European cars on U.S. roads, but I think that's probably unlikely in the near term, given how American car shoppers tend to prefer the larger SUVs and pickup trucks that Fiat Chrysler was already making here. But over time, we should expect to see some of the technology developed for Peugeots and Citroëns to show up in Chrysler products and some of Chrysler's technology to start to show up in Peugeot's cars. So for example, Peugeot is very aggressive with hybrid powertrains in its cars, and Fiat Chrysler ha has not done a ton of hybrid powertrain work aside from the Pacifica hybrid. So over the long run, we might see some of Peugeot's hybrid technology in Chrysler products. And if American consumer preferences shift towards small cars like they did in 2008, so if gas prices spike again, Stellantis could use Peugeot's engineering know-how to quickly develop a compact or mid-sized car for the United States, which Fiat Chrysler doesn't sell anymore and hasn't sold since 2016 when Fiat Chrysler discontinued the Chrysler 200 and the Dodge Dart. We've hinted at this a bit, but Carlos Tavares' game plan for Stellantis is pretty straightforward. He wants to chase economies of scale by combining engineering efforts, procurement, and management teams. And even if the combined company keeps every single brand, all 14 of them, the combined company can develop one compact car and sell it under all the different brands that need a compact car for various markets. And so this allows the combined company to behave more and more like Volkswagen, Toyota, and General Motors, all of whom have massive economies of scale and could develop new products much more cheaply than either Peugeot or Fiat Chrysler could have done so independently. Carlos Tavares has promised no factory closures and brand reductions right now. But over the long run, I think it's inevitable that Stellantis will need to close at least some factories and brands to streamline their efforts. Industry-wide, there's too much factory capacity in Europe right now, and a lot of this capacity is in high-cost countries 
like Germany, France, Italy, and the UK. So Stellantis is going to have to move quickly to save money and close underutilized factories and take that money and reinvest it in electric car and autonomous car development, which is where the world seems to be heading, at least in the near term. The combined company definitely has a weakness in electric cars. And so by combining their efforts and saving a lot of money on the things they're doing now, they'll finally be able to free up the cash that they need to invest in these products and to do so quickly and catch up to their peers at GM, Toyota, and Volkswagen. Carlos Tavares also plans to use Fiat Chrysler's expertise in large trucks and SUVs for two things. One, these large trucks and SUVs generate huge profits for the company, and Carlos Tavares can use these profits to finance new development. In addition, these large trucks and SUVs are attractive to consumers in the United States and China, where both companies are very weak automakers. The Chinese market is generally dominated by General Motors and Volkswagen Group, and and it's a market that's quickly shifting to larger and larger SUVs in terms of consumer preferences. And this is a part of the market that Peugeot has no expertise in developing. So by combining with Fiat Chrysler, they get this turnkey capability to build a lot of sport utility vehicles and pickup trucks. And so the strategy for China appears clear. Carlos Tavares wants to refocus the company and lead in China and start to build a presence in China through Fiat Chrysler's expertise in building the large trucks and SUVs that Chinese consumers want. In particular, Fiat Chrysler has the Jeep brand, which has a lot of brand equity worldwide. And so by combining the companies, they can put a lot more effort and resources behind promoting Jeep in China. Making cars is a hard business, and the road looking forward is going to be tough for all automakers because of increased regulatory, consumer, and technological pressures, but the road is especially tough for Stellantis because Carlos Tavares has barely done integrating Opel into Peugeot and is now taking on another automaker, Fiat Chrysler, that has had a bit of a mixed history with mergers, given its history as part of the failed Daimler Chrysler company. And so neither automaker is good at electric cars or autonomous cars. Neither automaker has an especially strong luxury presence. And luxury cars are where the profit margins are bigger and necessary to sustain a global automaker. And so while Fiat Chrysler does have luxury brands in Alfa Romeo and Maserati, neither Alfa Romeo nor Maserati operate at the same scale and volume that competitors BMW, Mercedes-Benz, or Audi operate at globally. And so while Jeep is an extremely desirable brand across the globe, and it's the most desirable brand amongst all of the Stellantis ones, it's still relatively untested in the luxury arena. And they're making a lot of efforts to push the Jeep brand up market with new products like the Grand Wagoneer, the Wagoneer, and the Grand Cherokee long wheelbase. This is still new for Jeep. So Carlos Tavares has a lot on his plate in front of him. And he's going to have his hands full charting both a new course for Stellantis and making sure everybody gets integrated into one happy automaker over the next few years. And although Stellantis thinks with the merger, it now has sufficient breadth and depth in its expertise, operations, and product portfolios now, other automakers are going to keep moving. And they'll probably 
pursue deeper consolidation and partnerships amongst themselves to further mitigate the cost of developing electric cars, autonomous cars, and to compete successfully against new entrants like Apple, Google, and Tesla. So even though Stellantis may have sufficient scale today, it might not have sufficient scale in a world where the remaining automakers have combined together as well. So for example, General Motors and Honda, although they're not merging, they they are working together on electric cars and autonomous cars. So they have a pretty deep partnership there where they can have the expertise from both automakers working on this new effort. And their combined scale and expertise is larger than that of Stellantis, at least at the current point in time. So Stellantis is chasing a bit of a moving target here, but I certainly think Carlos Tavares and his executive team has a much better chance today than they did one year ago because they've added Fiat Chrysler to the stable and they get access to Fiat Chrysler's profits, Fiat Chrysler's products, and the Jeep brand. So Fiat Chrysler gets access to small car expertise, a really strong management team, a strong Western European presence, and lots of alternative energy and hybrid powertrain technology in particular. So they can use that hybrid powertrain technology in developing pure electric vehicles in the future. And so that gives Fiat Chrysler a bit of a jump start over where it previously was, where they really didn't have a lot of expertise with hybrids, having only made one hybrid, the Pacifica hybrid, in recent years. So I wish Carlos Tavares and the Stellantis team all the best, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what new products and innovations they'll be able to produce, but they certainly have their work cut out for them. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of Integrated Derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. And now it's time for Rental Car Roulette. Rental Car Roulette is back. So we've had a bit of a hiatus on Rental Car Roulette because usually I play Rental Car Roulette when I'm traveling. But with the pandemic, I haven't really been flying anywhere. And so I've kind of taken a break from renting a car from Hertz. But... Over the weekend, to bring back the segment, I decided to go for it. So I booked a rental car and showed up at the Austin airport over the weekend and rented a car. I want to divide this segment into two parts. So one about renting a car during the pandemic and how it's changed compared with the last time I rented a car before the pandemic, and one about the car that I rented itself. So renting a car during a pandemic, what's change since last year. And I'd say the biggest difference about renting a car during the pandemic is the selection. So before the pandemic, I would roll into Hertz and there'd be a lot of variety. So there'd be all sorts of interesting things. And that is what made rental car roulette kind of fun is that one day you might see things like a Cadillac ATS, which I've driven before. And other days you might see a Mercedes C-Class convertible. 
And other times you might see things like a Subaru Outback, which I've driven before. So there used to be all sorts of really fascinating and interesting things that you maybe didn't always see at a rental car location. But this year and this time, it was pretty different. So I rolled into the Austin airport, which has historically had an okay selection of cars. And the selection of cars was pretty, pretty tough. So in the aisle, we had a bunch of Kia Sorentos, which is a perfectly fine car, but I've driven several of these as rental cars before, so nothing new there. We had a Ford Echo Sport, which is not that exciting of a car, so I didn't really want to go there. I've heard pretty terrible things about it. Um, there was a Buick Encore, which also has kind of gotten mixed reviews. A handful of Chevy Impalas, which I've driven before and haven't really been too excited by, even though they're pretty good cars. And they had a couple Ford Mustang convertibles, which seemed really fun, but didn't really seem to fit my mood. Uh, the the section also had a Nissan Pathfinder and a couple of other small SUVs that I don't remember. I think they had a Nissan Rogue Sport and a Nissan Rogue. Uh, and so the selection was pretty weak, and it was way worse than I'm used to renting pre-pandemic. In addition, the rental car lot is usually a pretty busy place with lots of people walking around, lots of employees checking out cars, checking in cars, other renters like me trying to find cars. And this time I went there on a Saturday morning and it was it was kind of like a ghost town. I didn't see anybody else there until I got in my car and drove out of the lot. Nobody else showed up while I was out there. I didn't see other employees walking the lot. And it was kind of a, had this ghost town vibe to it at the airport, which was pretty scary to think about because I, I haven't been to a rental car location since the pandemic began. So I have no reference point for how things are going at the rental car lots, but it's pretty brutal. And what's interesting, and another thing that's changed is I used to do this at the lot. And in hindsight, this isn't very pandemic friendly, but to try to find the newest car possible and to use that as a factor in my decision-making on what car to drive, I would check the mileage of each car. And the way that I would do this is I would open the driver's door, take a look at the odometer, sometimes even start the car if you couldn't clearly see the odometer right away, and make a mental note to myself of how many miles the car had on the clock. But this time, I couldn't do it because Hertz has started this new clean car initiative where after they sanitize the car and clean it out, they put this little sticker on the driver's door to show that they've cleaned it and then sealed it shut and nobody else has been in the car since they've cleaned it. But there's a massive problem with these stickers, and that is they only put the sticker on the driver's door. So in theory, somebody could open any of the other doors, breathe all over the car, and if they have uh, coronavirus, they could, in theory, put all these air particles inside the car and then just close the door. And it would still be sealed on the side, but somebody has now been inside aside from the Hertz cleaning staff. So these stickers... I see what they're trying to do, and they're trying to make us feel better about running a car, but I don't think it makes a difference in how clean the cars were. And so it just seemed kind of silly to see all these yellow stickers on the driver's door. Plus, when I did open up a car and broke the sticker, I had to peel off the sticker from the rest of the car because the plastic on the side of the car is not plastic that's meant for you to put a sticker on. So it takes like a couple minutes to peel off all the pieces of the sticker. And that was kind of annoying because I didn't want to be driving around with a giant Hertz 
clean car guarantee sticker on the side while I'm driving down the highway, even if it was broken. So it did seem kind of strange to see that. Um, And in the spirit of things, I didn't go through every single car and check the mileage. I just had to guess based on the age of the license plate and where the license plate came from. And so it further upped the stakes of rental car roulette. But maybe I should have known better, but it seemed like every car there was a bit on the older side. And then I remembered that Hertz hasn't really bought any new cars since before the pandemic. I guess bankruptcy will do that to you. Um, And also when demand completely dries up, I guess it makes sense not to buy new cars. And Hertz had previously been buying new cars pretty regularly because they wanted to have this very young, very new fleet to try and attract renters. But the fleet's getting old. And so everything there had been, it seemed like had been bought from just before the pandemic, kind of January, February, 2020. I do want to take a moment, and it sounds like I'm kind of dunking on Hertz here, but Hertz has historically had a pretty bad track record cleaning cars after other renters. So I've been renting fairly regularly from Hertz going back to 2014, which were some of the darkest days at Hertz in recent history. And I've rented cars with broken trim pieces, with previous renters' trash and debris, with gum, uh, various dirt all over the place. I've had cars that reeked of smoke, cars that sound that smelled like somebody had hotboxed inside of them. All sorts of things are possible when you're renting a car from Hertz before the pandemic. But this time, the car that I chose, it, it was spotless inside. Yes, it had more mileage than I'd like. It had about 21,000 miles on the odometer, but it was perfectly clean inside. Everything was vacuumed. It didn't smell like smoke. It didn't smell like somebody had hotboxed in it. There was no trash. There was no debris. I did find the previous renter's receipt in the uh, headliner, but that that was probably just an oversight on their part. So it wasn't perfect, but it was definitely much cleaner than I anticipated. And so it's kind of ironic that it took a, a pandemic and a complete shutdown of their business to get Hertz to invest the time to properly clean its cars in a consistent fashion. And the fleet's getting old, which I understand, but I think Hertz now has some financing in place to buy some new cars. And we could spend a whole episode talking about how Hertz arranges financing to buy cars because it's incredibly fascinating, but we'll save that for another episode. But Hertz has some financing in place to buy some new cars. They're working through their bankruptcy So I'm hoping in 2021, they'll buy some new cars that I can go and check out. And I'll probably wait until they start buying new cars again to go to Hertz because the cars that are left from before the pandemic are a pretty sad bunch. I mean, they sold off all their best stuff early in the game to try to raise cash. And if I recall correctly, they went through two rounds of bankruptcy court organized fleet disposals where they, I think, picked up the best pieces of the fleet and sold those cars first in an effort to try to raise the most cash to pay their creditors because they owe creditors a lot of money, which we can also dig into in a separate Hertz episode. So rental car roulette is probably going to be paused for a while, or I'll start renting cars from other agencies like Avis or National. But I think things are going to get better at Hertz, and I hope they do because I'd love to be back. Even though we're in a pandemic, I was reminded of the strange economics of rental cars, and how heavily taxed rental car transactions are. So we'll do a separate episode on this and why this is the case. But my final bill was $85. 
of which Hertz only kept $46 of it, or $23 a day, which was about 55% of the total. And the remaining $39 came from various fees, like a concession fee, an airport surcharge to pay for the fancy new rental car terminal at Austin Airport, an energy surcharge, not quite sure what that is, and a license plate recovery fee to to pay for the license plate on the car, plus the state and Travis County added 15% sales tax on the whole thing. So the rental car business has always been a really tough business to be in because a lot of the money that people spend on rental cars doesn't even go to the rental car company. But the pandemic and the shutdown of leisure and business travel has definitely made things much worse in the rental car business. And like I said, the selection at Hertz was pretty tough. And so I walked the aisle a few times. I looked at all these choices, all these Kia Sorentos, uh, the Nissan Pathfinder, a Ford EcoSport, and a few other things. And I chose a 2020 Ford Edge SEL with all-wheel drive. So if you follow us on Instagram, at Company Cars Podcast, you'll see a picture of the car and, and a few items about it. And I was pretty excited about this car because I've rented and driven several Ford Fusions, with which the Edge shares its underlying structure and design, and I really enjoyed the driving experience, and so I expected this Edge to feel like a Ford Fusion on stilts. And the Ford Fusions that I've driven all felt very buttoned down, very fun to drive, very solid at high speed. They feel very European and Germanic in their feel, but for much less money. And so I always appreciated how the Fusion drove like a car $10,000 more expensive than its sticker price would suggest. And this particular Ford Edge felt exactly that way. The interior had some quirks, but it drove really well. It was very solid, very stable, very quiet, and handled really well. I could really feel everything the car was encountering and everything the car wanted to tell me, and I was very confident driving the car. But the interior had some interesting quirks. So when I got in, the driver's seat was just a little too supportive and had like too much lumbar support, and it felt like it was sticking out at my back for a bit until I adjusted it for a few minutes to try to get comfortable. I get the feeling the Edge was designed for bigger and taller drivers because there was a lot of headroom, and the seat felt like it was designed for somebody who was a bit taller than me. So I'm pretty short. I'm five foot three. And it felt like the car was designed for somebody who was like six foot or something. And so it took me a while to adjust and it took me a while to get used to the seat before I really got comfortable in the car. But after I think the first couple hours driving the car, I got reasonably comfortable. And on longer highway drives, I think I would appreciate the extra lumbar support. But the car does all the big things well. It's very quiet. It has enough power. It gets good gas mileage. The interior, the controls are very easy to use. The materials seem reasonably high quality. Uh, There's some nice touches, like a compartment that's specially designed to hold a phone in a way where you can still see the screen if you need to. So it's not like facing down or facing flat on the ground. It's like kind of like nestled against the edge like you would if you didn't have a navigation system and needed to use your phone. So that was really nice, and I really appreciated it. Uh, But the interior also had some quirks, too. So this Edge had about 21,000 miles. So it's not that old in the grand scheme of things. It's very old for a rental car, but not that old in the grand scheme of cars. And I'll talk about this more in a minute, but my car had the panoramic glass sunroof where most of the roof is glass. And I could hear 
this panoramic glass roof, which most of these are glued into the roof, I could hear this thing rattling and it drove me nuts on the highway. Anytime I would go over a bump or something, I could hear the roof shake a little bit. And that that was really strange for a car that's supposed to be this very refined quasi upscale experience. So if I were buying my own Ford Edge, I might skip the panoramic sunroof, which is $1,600. And it's kind of a pity because the sunroof did add a lot of nice natural light into the car, which I really enjoyed, especially because mine had a black interior. I also couldn't figure out the backup camera settings. And so when I put the car in reverse, uh, it the backup camera didn't show these guidelines that most cars have that show you how far away you are from certain things. So you have a frame of reference. And it didn't show you where your car was going to end up when you turned the steering wheel. But I checked online. I checked some Ford Edge listings. And you can see the grid lines in the listings. And so it's something specific to this Edge where somebody had turned off the settings. But then I went into the car settings and it showed as the guidelines being on. So I don't know what's going on with this particular Edge. Uh, this probably isn't a Hertz issue. It's more of a Ford issue. And so that kind of bothered me, but I got used to having a backup camera without the guide rails after a little bit, but it definitely was a quirk of the car. My biggest gripe with this particular Ford Edge, though, and why I think this car ended up at Hertz, is that this particular Edge was very oddly configured. So I got home and I reconstructed the car sticker price, and it has a sticker price of $39,835, or around $40,000. And at $40,000, this particular car was missing some really strange things. So this car doesn't have a power tailgate, which I would have assumed was standard. And I was busy looking around for the button and couldn't find it. And I was shocked that the tailgate was manual. And so at $40,000, I would have expected this to be standard. And also, this car didn't have the optional Ford Copilot 360 Plus system, which primarily has adaptive cruise control which I also would have expected to be standard at this price point, since it's standard on a $20,000 Toyota Corolla. But whoever ordered this car ordered it with the optional $1,600 panoramic glass sunroof, which was a really nice touch and brightened up the interior, but it wasn't necessary at this price point, plus it caused all those rattles that I was complaining about earlier. So it was a very strange car to have the super fancy expensive sunroof, but no power tailgate and no adaptive cruise control. Two things that you might notice if you actually drove this car every day and drove it on long road trips and such. Maybe Hertz ordered the car this way, or maybe Ford built a bunch of Edge SUVs without the power tailgate and then realized consumers really want it and they're less likely to buy a car without one and then offered Hertz a big discount to take the car. I don't know for sure. I suspect it's the latter because this is a really strange configuration for Hertz to order. So I have to assume that Ford built all these Edge SEL trims without the, uh, the SEL convenience package, which has the power tailgate with the hands-free sensor uh, so you can open it by just kind of waving your foot at the bottom. And I think Ford just built too many of these and and overestimated the number of people who would want a big $40,000 SUV with no power tailgate and then dropped off a bunch of these at Hertz at a big discount. And so overall, the Edge was a really nice SUV, but it's starting to feel a little bit dated because the original design dates back to 2015, even though Ford has done several really comprehensive refreshes, reconfigurations, new trim lines, 
and shuffling of things around to make it fresh. But this segment is really competitive. And since the Edge has come out in 2015, we've seen a lot of advancements in this business. So we've seen a new Nissan Murano. We've seen a, a new Honda Passport. We've seen a Volkswagen Atlas Cross Sport. We've seen the return of the Toyota Venza. So there's a lot of new cars in this segment. And it's a segment that's constantly evolving. So if you have a design that dates back to 2015, even if it's a really good one and a really sound one like the Edge, it's hard to keep the car top of mind to consumers. And I'll admit that prior to driving this car from Hertz, I had completely forgotten about the Ford Edge because nothing really new has happened with this car in a while. Uh, the car did have a refresh for 2019, but it was a very mild refresh. And so I honestly just kind of forgot about the car until I drove it. And I was reminded of how good the car is uh, behind the scenes and, un and the underlying design and, and how good that is. And so to combat this, Ford has some really big rebates on the edge. And these rebates kind of changed the game. So Right now, as of this taping, Ford in Austin, Texas has, I think, $5,500 in rebates on the Edge, plus an additional $250 or $500 bonus cash if you finance with Ford credit. So $6,000 in rebates on this car, plus most dealers, I took a quick look at my local Ford dealer, most Ford dealers are discounting the Edge another three dollars to $4,000 right out of the gate before any negotiation. So you're talking about discounts of almost nine or $10,000 before you even lift a finger. And that does kind of change the game on this car. I think this car is much more interesting at $30,000 than it is at $40,000, even without the power tailgate and without the adaptive cruise control. Although I definitely would try to find one that has the power tailgate and has the adaptive cruise control. And I might forego the fancy panoramic sunroof so you don't have to live with the rattles. But that's a lot of SUV for $31,000, $32,000, $33,000 before taxes. And it's a really compelling car at that price point. So even with the rebates, I think it's maybe not the most competitive car in the segment just because of its age, but it's definitely a really good value with the rebates. And so I would make sure that if you're shopping in this segment, that you try everything and that you are comfortable with all your choices and that you have a good feel for the crowd before you pick a car because there's lots of really excellent cars in this segment, including the last car I drove on rental car roulette, the Subaru Outback. So there's lots of really good choices here and I think it's definitely worth it to try a bunch of these. But I did wind up liking the Ford Edge a lot more than I thought I would and the longer I had the car, the more I liked it. I think by the end of the rental, I was getting really comfortable with the car and it started to feel very familiar and it was very easy to get to know. So some cars have a really steep learning curve where you have to learn all these complicated menus and such. The Edge is none of that. It's you spend a couple hours in it and you're instantly familiar and comfortable with the car, which I really appreciated. And so overall, I liked the Ford Edge a lot more than I thought I would. And with the right mix of rebates and discounts, I would maybe consider buying one. Now it's time for listener questions. This week, our listener question comes from Chelsea in Athens, Georgia, who writes, If cars all come with these fancy cameras for lane departure warning, forward collision warning, etc., etc., why don't automakers also include an integrated dash camera that records, maybe to a memory card? 
So this is a really interesting question and one that I had never really thought much about. And coincidentally enough, someone asked the same question on a Reddit subreddit that I read. So somebody asked this question on the Ask Car Sale subreddit. And so I just referred there for the answer. And it seems like some automakers are starting to offer dash cameras. In particular, people said Tesla and BMW, I think, offer integrated dash cameras as an option. But a lot of posters said that automakers are worried about any potential legal liability for the content of the dash cam in case the footage becomes critical for a particular civil case or criminal case in court, or if the footage gets destroyed or is lost by the car, then do the automakers have a responsibility to help you recover that information? And it seemed like a lot of automakers just didn't want to deal with that. Another reason that posters suggested as a reason for why dash cameras don't come from the factory is that dash cameras are pretty easy to replace and they fail pretty frequently. And so if you have a dash cam that's integrated into the car, that makes it very difficult to change out and replace. So that's another reason why automakers may not want to put this in the car because then it becomes a part that people have to buy and it increases costs for everybody and consumers get a bit disgruntled with this. Finally, I think consumers on average don't seem to be super interested in paying for dash cameras in the United States, at least, because if you look around and you look for cars with dash cameras, the percentage of cars with a dash camera in the United States, I think just anecdotally, is much lower than cars in China, cars in Europe, or cars in other markets. And so we're just not that excited about dash cameras on average for some reason. And in the end, lack of consumer demand is probably why uh, automakers don't offer these options. And so it's no surprise that the automakers that do offer these options, Tesla and BMW, are cars that are more typically bought by enthusiasts who seem to be more likely to want dash cameras either to protect their car or to record certain events while they're driving. So that's going to wrap it up for us today. Join us again on another episode of Company Cars, where we'll explore another question about the car business. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. A special shout out to our service and maintenance intern, Get a Warranty.